I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Few issues are more divisive in the politics of American education than the role of teachers' unions. On the campaign trail, Republican politicians routinely blame the unions for the mediocre performance of American schools. And over the past several years, Republican governors and legislatures in states like Wisconsin and Indiana have sought to limit union influence by placing new limits on collective bargaining and the ability of unions to collect fees from non-members. Often missing from the debate over teachers' unions in the U.S. is any acknowledgement of the fact that teachers' unions are powerful around the world, including in countries that manage to perform at much higher levels. How have they done so? And what, if anything, can the U.S. learn from their example? I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Terry Moe, the William Bennett Monroe Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's a regular contributor to Education Next and the co-editor of a new book, The Comparative Politics of Education, Teachers' Unions and Education Systems Around the World. Terry, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Great to be here. So Terry, this latest book is something of a departure for you, I think, of you as someone whose interests have primarily been in American politics and the politics of education in the U.S. So what drew your attention to the comparative politics of education? Well, you know, I, I've uh, been studying teachers' unions for some uh, time and also uh, studying the politics of American education for a lot longer than that. And, uh, you know, I've always been impressed by how little we know about the politics of education in other countries and in particular how little we know about what the teachers unions do there and how they figure into uh, education politics and shape the schools in, in other countries. Uh, you know Americans tend to talk about education reform as though it uh, sort of just got moving with uh, a nation at risk in 1983 and that it's all about us. You know it's something that that happened in this country. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that something similar has been happening in most nations around the world. You know, this is a worldwide phenomenon. And the kinds of things that have been happening here uh, uh, politically uh, and uh, involving the teachers' unions have been happening in other countries as well. And it's, I think it's really important for us to study these things um, and to uh, you know try to learn from them and to recognize that we're not exceptional. So your book includes case studies of nearly a dozen countries and of the politics of education with a particular focus on teachers unions and one of the conclusions you draw is that there have been sort of very similar patterns of development in many countries. You talk about two periods, a period of institutional formation and then performance-based institutional reform. Can you tell us a little bit more about that common trajectory of development? Yeah, I think the commonalities are really striking. And so basically, um, in all countries, just about, uh, what we have is, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, the formation of uh, public education systems. Uh, and uh, uh, these systems uh, became institutionalized. They developed over time, uh, and they ultimately became entrenched. Um, and this happened everywhere. And as that was happening, uh, 
and as more and more kids were being included in the education system, these systems are getting bigger and uh, um, uh, more resources were being devoted to them. They were taking up a bigger chunk of education budgets of nations and are becoming more and more important to countries, as they should be, I, I think. Uh, the teachers' unions were getting organized and getting involved in these systems and becoming politically active uh, everywhere. Right? So uh, actually the United States was late in this regard. Our, our education system was in some sense fully developed before the teachers' unions actually got organized in the 1960s and 70s. And the reason for that was, unlike in other countries, uh, collective bargaining by public sector workers was illegal here. And uh, uh, the teachers' unions uh, weren't able to get organized until the states changed their laws in the 60s and 70s. But in other countries, they got organized much earlier. And as the uh, institutions of education developed, so did the teachers' unions. And by mid-century, they were, in most countries, sort of uh, uh, woven into the warp and woof of these institutional systems as integral participants in education, and they too were very entrenched. They had massive resources uh, because they had so many members, and they were directly involved in elections uh, and other aspects of politics. They had the capacity uh, to go out on strike and to be disruptive and so on, and all those things gave them um, uh, political influence of, uh, everywhere, basically. So there are always key players in the politics of education, and that, and that was um, uh, a product of this early period of institutional formation, and then everything changed. So in talk about the 1970s. <laughs> talk about the the period of what you call performance-based institutional reform and how their role has changed in that era. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating thing. Uh, basically. Um, in, in the 1970s and 80s, two things happened. One, uh, the world became globalized, and, and there was you know, very disruptive technological innovation and m much more intense competition and so on, and nations everywhere began to emphasize human capital as a way to uh, make themselves and their economies more competitive. And what that meant was they wanted academic achievement, they wanted uh, performance out of their educational institutions. Well, they'd never demanded that before, right? They had created these educational institutions in the past mainly to just get kids into school, you know, and to move from primary education to include secondary education. It wasn't about academic performance. It was about just providing services to, to kids. And so this was a new demand that the institutions really weren't prepared to uh, provide. And so Nations then began to say, okay, we've got to reform these institutions. At the same time, uh, there was a second uh, uh, big development uh, in mid-century, well, in the, in the 70s and 80s, which was the crisis of the welfare state. You know, uh, nations around the world began to realize, God, we've made all these uh, promises to people. They're extraordinarily expensive. We have these huge bureaucratic structures to provide them. And uh, things are not working very well, right? And so what we need to do is devise new forms of governance that are more effective, right? And, and the basic approach was neoliberal. That's what it's called now, right? And that involved decentralization. 
you know, more decentralization, more accountability, and more reliance on markets and choice. So it varied around the world, but uh, basically these neoliberal ideas caught on as an alternative to sort of the old top-down bureaucratic approach to governance. And it wasn't just happening here, it was happening everywhere. And so this played a big role in shaping the way governance, governments approached education reform. So it turns out that the kinds of things that we've been talking about, accountability and choice in the United States, they're talking about them everywhere, you know, all around the world. And the teachers' unions have been major forces in the politics of education in dealing with decentralization, accountability, and choice. And everywhere, they've turned out to be the opponents of reform. Now, one of the arguments your book makes is that some countries have been relatively freer to act in this area era of reform than others, and you put the U.S. in a more constrained uh, bucket to some degree. Um, help us understand what explains that variation across countries. Yeah, so I, I think the place to start is that all countries, and this even includes developing nations like Mexico and India, um, have felt these pressures to improve their education systems. Um, and so uh, they want to bring about reforms. And the question is, how are, how are they going to do this? Um, because the old institutions are politically protected by the vested interests that had power under those institutions and gained from those institutions. So how can you overcome the opposition of the vested interests? Well, the teachers' unions are the prime vested interest because um, they represent the job interests of members, right, and their stake in the old institutions. So the union's main opposition then is expressed through blocking, right? They, they can try to just block these efforts. Well, how can you block in politics? Well, okay, in the United States, we have a separation of power system. And it turns out that in a separation of power system, it's easy to block, right, because there are so many different veto points. Uh, and then if you look around the world, there are other systems, some parliamentary systems, like in Germany and France, uh, that also have multiple veto points, uh, like Germany has uh, a two-house parliament, and they have federalism, right? So there are many ways that reforms can be blocked. And so in those kinds of systems, then... Uh, the unions and other vested interests have found it easier to block, and as a result, reform hasn't really gone very far in those countries. The flip side is that if you look at nations that don't have veto points, that have like one-house parliamentary systems, um, that's where you get the real action because blocking is, is difficult, and the government is really powerful. And, and so if the government is committed to reform, then the government has the formal power to actually make form a reality. And this is what happened in England and in Sweden and ultimately in, in Norway and Denmark. And that's the story there. It's a story about veto points. Now, you've been arguing for quite some time that teachers unions in the U.S. have been blocking reform and have been a obstacle to improving the performance of American education. Uh, I imagine that some listeners will hear you talk about how powerful unions are around the world, even in some higher performing countries, and say, doesn't this sort of cast doubt on the argument you've been making that unions are really the obstacle to reform in the U.S.? How do you respond to that line of argument? All right. Uh, well, there are two points here. Uh, one is, 
have there been obstacles to reform? And I think the answer there is absolutely yes, you know, here and everywhere else. And it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they don't want the schools to be good. It's because reform is threatening to their interests. And that's, this is what interest groups do in all areas of public policy, not just education. There's not, nothing special about the teachers' unions. And so just on objective grounds, I think it's just flat out true that in the United States and Germany and France and England and Sweden and everywhere else, the unions are the major opponents of these kinds of reforms, neoliberal reforms, because they threaten the job interests of the unions. Now, the second question is, what does that mean for performance, right? What is the connection between union power and performance? And this comparative book that looks at unions across nations and looks at the politics of education across nations is just about the exercise of power and about uh, reform and about whether reform actually goes through or not. It's not about the connection between these reforms and performance. So we don't even address that question. I think it's a very, very complicated question, right? And I, so I think researchers need to really focus on that and deal with that in the future. But one thing that we need to consider is that the union's opposition to these things is not based upon whether the reforms are good for performance or not good for performance. It's based upon threats to their interests, right? And so I think there's a prima facie case that can be made that, um, you know, whenever there are reforms that will really work, you know, in many cases, those reforms are not going to go through, right? And they're not going to go through because they're threatening to vested interests, and those vested interests have nothing to do necessarily with performance. And, and this is a disconnect that I think um, doesn't augur well for the performance consequences. So another way to think about the question I'm trying to get at, maybe phrased in a more positive light, is is there anything that the United States can learn from the examples of other countries that have been able to achieve higher levels of performance in the presence of a heavily unionized education system? For example, are there ways in which collective bargaining is structured in a more central way versus a more decentralized way? Uh, are there differences in the connections between unions and the party system um, that we might learn from uh, as we look across countries? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a really complicated question. I, I, see, I think part of the problem that we've had in the past is that people tend to say, Wow, look at Finland, you know. Look at how, how, how well their kids are doing. We should be like Finland, you know. And the thing is, well, we're not like Finland. You know, Finland has five million people. Finland is um, uh, very homogeneous. They have, they have a very small minority population. They're one of the most affluent countries in the world. Um, so you, you put it all together, and uh, we can't be like Finland, right? So also, they have a parliamentary system, a one-house parliamentary system with, with no veto points. Um, their political system is totally different from ours. Um, uh, the way collective bargaining is carried out, which is in a centralized manner, is, is totally different from the way it's carried out here. And so you can say, well, can we learn from them? But, but there's so much in the structure of the two countries that's fundamentally different that it's really unclear, right, what we can take away 
from their experience. Also, I, I think it's dangerous uh, to assume that by looking at their schools um, and trying to mimic what they're doing, that we can get their results because we don't even know why those kids there are doing well, right? Um, the fact is uh, they're high in socioeconomic status. They don't have the minority populations that we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, scholars have never been able to determine exactly what it is that we should be mimicking. And then w we probably couldn't mimic those things anyway because they're these big structural things that we can't do anything about. And I didn't mean to just focus on Finland, but I'm just taking that as an example. It's true if we want to look across other countries as well. Now, as you said at the outset, this book was really setting off into uncharted territory. Not much research has been done really on the comparative politics of education right, at all, right. uh, much less on teachers' unions in particular. What was the most surprising thing that you learned from this exercise? I, I think I was really surprised at how um, similar things are across the world. Um, basically, we entered into this, and we didn't know. You know, I, I, I didn't know what, what, what the politics of education was really like in, in France um, or in Sweden or in Denmark or in Mexico, right? And I didn't know what the role of the teachers' unions would be. What we, and we're, not, we're really focusing on the teachers' unions uh, because there are really good reasons why they should be organized and active and really central to the politics of education. And if you want to study the politics of education and have a field of the comparative politics of education, this is a good opening wedge, right? Because they're right at the heart of it. And if, if you want to study, want to know what the politics of education is about, it's really good to focus on an actor that's right at the heart of it. And, and you can learn a lot about it. So we didn't know what to expect. And it turns out, I think, uh, at least in part, because uh, uh, the environment of globalization and technological change and the crisis of the welfare state and so on is so common across the world. Right, that, that these nations are shaped by very similar forces to improve their schools, but they're all facing institutions that are old and weren't set up to respond to these demands and are, in fact, destined to resist those demands because of the vested interests that are inevitably part of those institutions. And let me also emphasize that uh, another element of commonality here is the vested interest part. I think people uh, tend to react negatively if you, if you say, say the teachers' unions are vested interests. Um, but the fact is, uh, this is not a pejorative thing. There, every institution of any kind across all policy areas in every country throughout time has generated vested interests. Right? The people who receive the services have a vested interest in those services. The people who have jobs in government have a vested interest in those jobs, and on and on. You know, the companies that contract with the government have a vested interest in those contracts. Politicians in some countries that, that manipulate the money and use them for spoils and so on, they have a vested interest, right? And so the vested interests are a major force for stability in institutions. And so if you want to change those institutions and improve them, the vested interests have a stake in stopping you. And so I think by, by focusing on vested interests, what we learn is something about the dynamics of institutional change and also something about the great commonalities 
that apply across nations because this is a universal thing. And I think from the standpoint of understanding what's going on, it's a really exciting thing. My guest today has been Terry Moe, professor of political science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press is The Comparative Politics of Education, Teachers Unions and Education Systems Around the World. Terry, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.